0: Paracast with
1: your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Pietney.
2: Jerome Clark and I became acquainted as teenagers, following UFOs in the early nineteen sixties. Now he's gone a lot further in the UFO field than I have, and in other fields in which he's involved. But I think the way for you listeners who haven't followed his work would best understand what he does is would be to go through his progression of interest in the UFO field and where his theories and where his speculations have moved. So, Jerry, welcome to the show. David well, thank and I you. are pleased as punch that you've decided to join us. And, you know, I haven't talked to you in 40 years, so this is something very special for me, too. You know, it's well, not special you. for you. It's been you. a long time. <laughs> yeah, I think the last time I was actually living in Minnesota, and we had a discussion about different things, but how did you get attracted to the UFO mystery, the UFO field?
3: Well, the experience gave me a a great appreciation for the effect that a book can have on on an impressionable young mind. I was interested in science fiction when I was a kid, when I was about 10 years old. read all the science fiction I could get hold of. I don't read anymore. In fact, I, I can barely stand to, to read a science fiction book anymore. But in those days, as the saying goes, the golden age of science fiction was when you were 13. And uh, I joined the science fiction book club and you got like four books for joining. And I chose three science fiction titles and I had one nonfiction title on the list, The Report on the Unidentified Flying Objects by Edward Ruppelt. Well, that looks interesting, and I got that, and um, I read that book, and it was a good book to start, I guess, because Rupel had been head of Project Blue Book in the early 1950s, very sober guy who uh, really had a balanced approach to the phenomenon, which was not true of many people then or now. And the book really made an impression on me. I think that if I had read a book by George Damsky talking about palling around with Venusians, even at that young age, I'd have laughed it off and said, this is all nonsense. But Rupel had a, an approach that uh, was serious and sober and seriously analytical. And he said, there really is something to this. It's hard to figure out what, but it's a real mystery. And um within a year or two, I had read just about every UFO book that had been published up till then and and then I found my way to Charles Ford's omnibus volume which uh, was a compilation of the four books he wrote between 1919 and 1932 chronically all kinds of anomalies and I was really hooked and then I found my way to Fate magazine and and the teenage UFO community which is where your path gene and mine crossed and it just became something that I was never able to put behind, I guess. And I really, the the culmination of it was the multi-volume UFO encyclopedia project, which I did in the 1990s. I've been also involved with the Center for UFO Studies since um, the early 1980s when uh, Dr. Alan Hynek asked me to edit International UFO Reporter, which is the Krufos magazine. And that's kind of a very brief history of my career in this field.
2: Now, everybody who had a theory in the fifties were saying, okay, they're not from here, they have to be ETH. But when you read Charles Ford, you realize that UFOs have been part and parcel of our world in different forms with different interpretations for an awful long time. So if there's a presence at all, this presence is something that almost seems like it's a part of our world, not something visiting our world. So at what point did you say, you know what, it's not really ETH, or maybe it is, but there's more to it?
3: Well, I think that it depends how you define the UFO phenomenon. I I am convinced that there's more than one thing going on, and one of them probably is extraterrestrial visitation. I I can't really think of any other good explanation for the hardcore cases of radar visuals, physical traces, um, EM effects, uh, some of the really persuasive photos and films. It's really hard to imagine that these are not extraterrestrial spacecraft. If you accept the premise, as most astronomers now do, that the galaxy is densely inhabited, we're more likely to have evidence of an ET presence than not. In fact, if we had no evidence of that, I would say it's likely that the universe is very thinly populated, if at all, besides us, of course. The problem is that everybody looks at this and wants one mm-hmm. overarching explanation, whether that person's a skeptic or a proponent or has a kind of mystical religious view of it. I think that we have to understand that part of what we call UFOs really probably isn't that. It's part of an experience phenomenon that has always been part of human beings. And then there's something else that that began to enter human experience in the last 100 or 200 years. And that if you go back well into the 19th century and dig far enough, you'll find reports of uh, daylight discs and and things like what we call UFOs today that nobody was thinking of or talking about back then that really do do seem to have some kind of objective presence. Coexisting with this has been an extraordinary experiential phenomenon that takes on different colorations depending upon the cultural context in which it's encountered. And it manifests in, you know, fairy lore, other kinds of supernatural traditions. And I think that it shows up in in some of the really bizarre and, and high strangest UFO cases. And that these things exist really only in experience, memory, and testimony. They're not things that that exist or are real in the way we ordinarily use those words. They're, they're deeply anomalous. But they have seriously confused the discussion about the meaning of the UFO phenomenon.
0: So where does then something like the, the Fatima revelations fit into that, Jerry? Because one of the things that intrigues me about your own work is that you are looking at these long historical stretches even outside of your work in the ufo realm you you seem to have an interest in belief systems of humans going back more than a couple of hundred years so when you look at something like you know sort of the fatima revelations you have the what appears to be some sort of physical manifestation going on but yet it's cloaked in all of these religious overtones how do you make sense of that or do you
3: well, I'm not an expert on the Fatima phenomenon. I've read about it. Mm-hmm. But it seems to be that, that it's part of a of a long tradition of, you know, genuinely puzzling, you know, religious visions that, that do have a kind of reality, that do mirror the particular culture or the particular belief of the person or persons who experience it. But that don't seem to exist in in consensus reality. I mean, they can be experienced, they can never be proved, because they're not really here, except in somebody's brief experience of it. What's so difficult about addressing these things is that we really don't have a vocabulary. We can say, well, this is a visionary experience, but that's descriptive, it's not explanatory. That it's as if we're presented with alternative ways sometimes, of experiencing the world. But these alternatives that are offered to us are never robust enough to overwhelm consensus reality. They sort of compete with it, but they don't overwhelm it. That the consensus reality continues. But sometimes, under particular circumstances, we get to experience what an alternative might be like. An alternative well, in which... You know, all kinds of extraordinary entities and creatures, you know, can be encountered.
0: In going through the UFO encyclopedia, which, in my humble opinion, has to be the most extensive, well-researched work of any sort on the history of the UFO um, phenomenon, it, it, it really is just a, a stunning achievement, and uh, and I think everybody should, should know that. Um, what you've done here is actually create a document um, that I think will withstand the ravages of time. This is going to be, I think, this and and Richard Dolan's writings are going to end up being, I think, ultimately the real written history of, of, of this phenomenon over the last easily 100 years.
3: If that, thank you. It's interesting you say that, because as I was working on the project and writing it, I had the sense that I was writing this for the future.
0: hmm Absolutely. When-
3: when people are going to have to go back, scientists and scholars, government officials, and say, what did we miss? Why didn't we pay attention to this? And th- I had that sense that that book would, might serve that function.
0: I think that is extremely prophetic, and I think that, I think that history will bear that out. I, I, I really feel that um, you know, if you had to put two sets of, of works away for future reference... It would be the, the two volume set of UFO Encyclopedia, the UFO Encyclopedia, and Richard Dolan's, what will hopefully be the three book series he does, the UFOs in the National Security State. Rich takes a slightly different approach than you. You, uh, is in many ways, are, are much more exhaustive look at, at specific cases. Rich is kind of looking at a chronological history of what has happened over the past 60 years. You're actually, I think, giving a, a more macro level context, but also you're drilling down into much more detail in, in specific cases. And one of the things that comes out of this, and looking at your book, I'm, I'm curious to know, and this is something we've asked other people on the show, you look at something like the, uh, the Pascagoula case, the abduction case, and you look at the, the creatures that are described in that case, and you know, there there is this uh, uh, reality that for the past maybe 40 years, and please correct me when I'm, when I'm done asking this question, the prototypical greys seem to be sort of the, the base standard of the types of creatures seen, but you have something like this Pascagoula case where you've got a creature that, to my understanding, based on the little that I know about the history of this, the creatures described here seem to have no other equivalent in any known abduction case, and, and and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, to what do you possibly attribute the vast variety of morphology types of these creatures? What do you think that's a result of?
3: Well, you're absolutely right about the Pascal case. As far as I know, there's other case where where creatures or robotic entities, such as uh, Hickson and Parker reported in Coing, are noted. I've really never heard of another case like that. Mm-hmm. One thing that um, these entities do have in common is that overwhelmingly they have a human or humanoid shape. That's one thing they have in common. There are also an extraordinary number of cases going well back to the beginning of the, the close and common to third kind phenomenon of, of UFO entities that are human or very close to human looking. And uh, these cases have really not really been noted. In fact, I didn't really appreciate them until I was writing on close encounters for the third kind, of the third kind for my encyclopedia. But I really had to pay focused attention to these reports. I was just struck how many people were describing human-like entities, along with, you know, the little, generally little gray men and other variations on that theme. So, I mean, there are some fairly robust patterns. In the C three data, one of them is of the human-like entities. Mm-hmm. The other one is also human-like entities that are shorter. They're they're human in appearance, except they're short. And then you have these sort of grotesque-looking um, humanoids. Beyond that, you 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 get, as you say, a kind of a you know a complex variety of human-like or humanoid entities. It is my view that probably most of these encounter claims, particularly the the more extreme ones, are really part of the experience phenomenon. They're kind of a modern manifestation of what people underwent when they experienced fairies or other kinds of supernatural entities, except that these kinds of subjective experience phenomena have the coloration of the UFO age. And um, these experiences are, you know, vivid and very strange and, and highly anomalous, but they probably aren't encounters with genuine extraterrestrial beings. I think the abduction phenomenon is probably overwhelmingly some kind of, you know, experiential correlate to the UFO event, the UFO event defined as the radar visual, the CE2 and so on. Hi, this is Bill Burns from UFO Magazine and UFO Hunters. You know, there are several ways that you can get UFO, UFO magazine.
4: magazine. yeah, we know, Bill. We know, we know, we know. Just shut up. Just give us one way. Don't tell us you're psychic and, you know, give 8,000 phone numbers and take 15 minutes of our time when we just want to hear the show. Just tell us how we can get UFO Magazine in one way.
3: Okay, okay. Just go to www.ufomag.com, subscribe
1: online. You happy? Was that so hard? Actually, harder than you know.
0: Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you've heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too.
4: Hi, this is Don Ecker, and you
3: are tuned into the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedny. Hey, let me tell you what, you're going to hear stuff here that you probably won't hear anywhere else. Hear that, George Snorri?
2: We're talking to Jerome Clark, UFO historian extraordinaire, and we're trying to focus on Areas of UFOs and related phenomena that listeners, maybe you haven't talked about or heard about or considered before, David.
0: So, Jerry, the thing about that—it's very interesting you say that. So, how do you then reconcile? Let's let's take the abduction experience specifically. How do you then reconcile what could potentially be, let's say, a psychological projection? If I'm understanding your definition of the experience phenomenon, how do you um? You take something that is potentially psychologically manifested, and reconcile that with things like scars that people have—physical scarification or or the physical manifestation of some sort of physiological procedure.
3: Now, I'm not talking about psychological projections.
0: Okay. Okay.
3: No, I, I'm not. That—that's really. That's a simplistic and reductionist explanation that doesn't work for all kinds of reasons, is the lens I point out. But I'm talking about, really, an extraordinary experience phenomenon that has a certain temporary kind of reality. In other words, it can be experienced. It's just that the generating mechanism is not what it seems to be. It does not persist in the world, but when it's experienced, it has... You know, an extraordinarily vivid character, and people can emerge from it with, you know, a source of, um, you know, a physical, and excuse me, ambivalent physical marks and scars, or, you know, other kinds of ostensible evidence of the reality of the experience. It's real, in a sense, as long as it's being experienced. The entities, the, the whole kind of phenomenology, though is only temporary it, it is a projection to the extent that the images in which it manifests come out of cultural expectations about the nature of an experience of the otherworldly in another context it would be gods or, or fairies or other kinds of you know extraordinary entities my point is that these things can be experienced and they can be experienced in an extraordinarily anomalous state of consciousness for which we barely have a vocabulary. But they aren't what they seem to be. If you took UFO abduction claims literally, you would have to conclude that many, many extraterrestrials are coming to Earth to to kidnap people for, you know, unscrutable reasons. And unfortunately there's really no good evidence for this extraordinary claim. There there is puzzling testimony but it never rises above puzzling testimony or vaguely suggestive but not conclusive evidence. That it's probably best for us to concede that, yes, you can have this experience. You can be a sane and normal person and have this experience. It is incredible. It is anomalous. It is unexplained. But it probably isn't what it seems to be. And that its, that its correlates are in all of humanity's experiences of supernatural entities and other worlds.
0: The term supernatural is an interesting one because it sort of takes these things that we don't understand and it places them above the natural world. Do you think maybe that that term is a bit of a misnomer? Maybe that what we're really dealing with here are parts of natu- natural mechanisms that we don't understand? I mean, the Gaia theory is one that is is tossed around quite a bit, for example, and there are a lot of reputable scientists that don't put any any weight to the idea that the Earth is a has sentience. Yet, would you say that it's probably fair to say that we don't understand enough about the nature of reality or the nature of nature to make definitive conclusions about what is part of reality and what is outside of it?
3: Well, I believe that everything is ultimately natural. Right. I believe that almost everything is ultimately susceptible to scientific explanation. And so you're right in 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 observing the failure of vocabulary. And when I talk about supernatural I'm not trying to make too much of that. Okay, it's just I'm just trying to say this is an experience of the other world, the extraordinary something far outside our ordinary conception of the natural. But yes, I believe that things are susceptible to science and, and, and natural explanation eventually. Mm-hmm. and in, in fact, I believe that ultimately the phenomena I'm talking about are really not a subject for psychologists, but for physicists. Mm-hmm. That it's a kind of idea of the multiverse, but occurring within common human experience.
0: Right. And within the realm of human perception, right? Right. We, I mean, yeah, the, the, to, the, right.
3: The, the, these, these things happen. But they don't happen like, you know, you know, you just ate a sandwich for lunch. They don't happen that way. They happen in a different way. And, and they happen in a way that manifests but leaves very little evidence of its occurrence outside memory and testimony.
5: Mm-hmm. And so
3: when we try to explain these things, either as manifestations of an objective other reality or as delusion or hoax or error, I think we're making, you know, category errors. But let us concede that, yes, people can have bizarre experiences that defy current knowledge. It's, that seems to me so obvious as no longer to be arguable, although, of course, it's argued and rejected <laughs> all the
0: time. All the time.
3: But But we can reject literalist interpretations of these experiences. The literalist interpretations don't seem to work either any more than the the skeptical interpretations work.
0: Yeah, no, it's like what's happening in experimental physics and and theoretical physics where there's a brick wall that has occurred and you have on on one side the the practical physicists who say this is what our instrumentation can tell us and then you have on the other side the uh, the Michio Kaku's, the Brian Greens, who say there is this complex thing going on in the multiverse. We we don't necessarily have direct observations of much of what it implies, but we have indirect observations that seem to support these these theories. And and I know that I, I've said this on the show before, and invariably I'll get we'll get some email from people saying you don't understand the difference between uh, experimental and practical physics, and I say well I'm not a physicist. I'm just another guy looking at this stuff. But it seems like there's a certain sort of a drop-off point beyond where we don't have instrumentation to help us evaluate even perhaps data sets that are coming in. We don't have uh, the background understanding of what we're even supposed to be looking for to even get it. I mean, Michio Kako actually makes a very good point when he talks about the ants in a forest and the humans building the superhighway next to to the ant hill. And kind of putting us in the position of ants and this thing, let's say the UFO uh, phenomenon, as something that perhaps we, in our current state of intellectual evolution, cannot understand. I mean, do you feel that there's a good point to that?
3: Well, there was a, a British Fordian writer, uh, Arthur Constance, in the 1950s, who coined this phrase, which unfortunately didn't survive him, but he called it spiderism. And he compared us to spiders, Trying to explain the entire world in all existence from the perspective of the spider. It's the same thing. You know, one thing that I think that physics teaches us, and I'm, har- I'm not a physicist, but I've read a few books on, on, on quantum physics and sat in some lectures, you get the sense that reality does not adjust itself to our common sense perspective on it. That, that actually reality ultimately is pr- profoundly counterintuitive. And so when people ask, you know, like, do extraordinary entities exist, they expect an answer that's yes or no, because we think that either something is so or it isn't so. But what if there's all kinds of things that are neither?
0: I've sometimes posited in discussions with friends and on the show that this binary binary foundation might end up being a, a result of the physiological makeup of our of our brain. Absolutely. That, right. That's, you can imagine ev- all
3: kinds of evolutionary explanations for for that way of seeing
0: the world. Yeah. There's an interesting a uh, piece of video footage someone on our forums posted about a a woman who spoke at the technology and entertainment design conferences, the TED conference, and she was talking about the human brain um, and apparently she had suffered, I don't, I don't have her name right in front of me at the moment, but she's a, a brain scientist who had suffered a stroke and um, was describing exactly how the stroke manifested from her point of view. But one of the things that's really interesting, and, and I was not really knowledgeable about this, she had brought it out to the stage a human brain, an actual human brain, and she took it out of the pan and she showed how the two lobes of the brain are not just two separate you know lobes, they are literally physically separated, they only meet in one place really they they literally there's space between the two lobes. And, and I wasn't aware of that specific, specific uh, aspect of human physiology. I just kind of thought, you know, okay, the, the idea of two lobes is that, okay, they're two sides of the brain and they, they work independently. But no, no, they're physically completely separate. And, and to me, that was very instructive in understanding that, yes, there is this, this thing about our, you know, it's either black, white, it, you know, you're left, you're right, you're conservative, you're liberal. Uh, we seem to be these bipolar creatures. We, 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 we gravitate towards one end. And it seems to be also the case with discussing, for example, UFOs, where, okay, you have to prescribe to a specific approach. It's a, either extraterrestrial or interdimensional. And, you know, when, when I hear that, I think, well, if you're an interplanetary species and you somehow figured out how to move between star systems, I, I my limited understanding of physics suggests that you would have to become interdimensionally capable it would be a byproduct of faster than light travel right you know and and to me i think of that and i'm not a physicist but yet i I kind of intuitively understand that so what do you think it is jerry then that holds back for example certain people and i don't want to name names here but there are certain people very well respected in the ufo field who kind of they take one position and they defend it with their lives what i get from reading the ufo encyclopedia is that you are really in, a, in as far as someone can be you're truly objective about this you don't seem to pick up any particular position and defend it to the death how is it that you've been able to maintain that kind of objectivity
2: let's have a cliffhanger and we'll ask about his objectivity in a moment hey neighbors the easiest online meeting service GoToMeeting, just got easier If you haven't tried GoToMeeting, now's the time. Because the new version of GoToMeeting has fully integrated voice over IP. With this new total audio feature, you have more audio options by being able to conference through a phone or the web. Save time, save money, and be more efficient. Hold an online meeting with GoToMeeting. Try GoToMeeting free for 30 days. Visit GoToMeeting.com slash Podcasts. That's com slash podcasts for a free trial.
4: Hi, this is Roger with eFoodsDirect.com. And I just wanted to welcome everyone for the Paracast Show. Hi to Gene and David and everybody out there. Listen, we're here to sponsor this radio show because we really like what Gene and what Dave are doing. And we'd like you to help us support them. Now we are a long-term storable food company, however, the foods that we produce are low moisture foods, they are very, very high quality and you can live on them every day. You can literally cut your grocery bill in half or more than half, maybe as much as 60% by buying bulk foods from eFoodsDirect.com. But right now a recession slash depression is on the way. We're advising people to sell the toys in the garage, hawk off the old jewelry you don't use, pour the money into food supplies before it's too late. I'm telling you it could be too late. We also can provide water filtration, other needs. Call eFoodsDirect.com and let us continue to support Gene and David here. 800-715-4380, 800-715-4380, or go to eFoodsDirect.com. That's eFoodsDirect.com, 1-800-715-4380. You're in the Powercast with Gene, Simon and
5: David B.A. You never know what's going to happen.
2: Drum Clark, UFO historian extraordinaire joining us for, we hope, is just his first of many visits to the Powercast. And so the question being here, how do you maintain that objectivity?
3: Well, you know, I don't even know that, that such a thing as objectivity exists. There are people who, I appreciate what you say, there are people who would strongly disagree with you about me, <laughs> 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 who, who don't think that I, I'm that objective. You know, obviously, I think that any. Who imagines himself to be intellectually serious tries to bring a measure of objectivity to this? I think more than objectivity, what I bring to this is a lifetime of thought and reflection. I've never stopped thinking about these things. And I find that, you know, as I've in the, in, the, in the twilight, I have come to a kind of grand synthesis about a lot of thinking. For example, in the in the 1960s, there was this kind of uh, radical quantum leap from the extraterrestrial hypothesis to really, you know, exotic kind of paranormal speculations championed by people like John Keel and Jacques Vallée and by England's Flying Saucer Review, which at the time was the most influential UFO magazine probably in the world. And so there was this There were these two camps that just shouted at each other and called each other all kinds of bad names. And I think that each side saw the weakness in the other while failing to see the strength of of the other's argument. And I think at the end of this, it finally came to me. It came to me in the 1980s after I had basically rejected the extraterrestrial hypothesis entirely and and for a time been in the Keel valet camp, that in fact there was much to be said for the extraterrestrial hypothesis, that there were cases that simply it was hard to imagine any other explanation for, and that any other explanation was probably unnecessary.
2: I hate to interrupt, but this raises what I was thinking about, which is where is the line of demarcation if we have ETH? and we have this other all-inclusive phenomenon, where do we separate one from the other or can we? Well,
3: this is the event and the experience. The, the event anomaly and the experience anomaly. In the event anomaly, potential strong evidence, even proof of the occurrence of something extraordinary can be demonstrated. Something shows up on radar, it's tracked on radar, An air radar, ground radar, it's seen by multiple witnesses on the ground and in the air. There's something there. There's something there that apparently is technological that registers on a radar screen just as an aircraft would do. And that is an event. That's not an experience. You are able to take that just, you're able to take that outside testimony and you, you can document it with instruments. Or something lands, leaves puzzling traces, which can be taken into a laboratory and shown to be highly anomalous and evidence of some unknown technology. There are cases like these, and some of them are described in the UFO Encyclopedia. That's different from somebody's experience of some fabulous monster that he encountered in the woods. Now, you can have, you know, there's all kinds of stories of people who appear to be sane and sincere who describe encounters with all kinds of extraordinary beasts and creatures in nature. But if these things exist in nature, they couldn't hide themselves, unless they were in some incredibly remote and inaccessible location.
2: That's the argument against Bigfoot, of course.
3: Yeah, but there is no... Well, the Sasquatch, the Bigfoot Sasquatch, the Pacific Northwest, may be a different case, because that is genuinely an incredibly remote and sizable area where an unknown animal at least arguably could hide and resist scientific documentation but I'm talking about encounters in South Dakota or Pennsylvania or Indiana or upstate New York any place you name there are stories going back sometimes decades and centuries of people's encounters with you know anthropoidal creatures or or lake monsters or whatever if these things are really there They could not hide themselves for very long that they they would they would have to be part of the you know the ecological structure of the area they would have to eat so much food and there would be we would know about them just as we know about the animals whose existence no one disputes wolves deer other things that live in the wild we don't have that evidence and i don't think that evidence will ever exist because those things aren't really there in the way that deers and wolves and Squirrels and all those other animals are there. But they are there in people's vivid
0: experiences. See, now, and, now here's the thing, Jerry. I, I, it's important, though. I, I want to counterbalance that for a moment because, um, and I brought this up on the show before so our listeners will know what I'm talking about, the preeminent biologist, uh, Edward O. Wilson, E.O. Wilson, uh, considered right. one of the greatest minds in the world as far as species was on an interview with Bill Moyer, and basically Moyer makes a statement. Well, you know, we know about most of the life on the planet, and he, he, and he just he says that, and Wilson stops him and says, "Well, well, no," he says, "In my estimation, we've only discovered maybe ten to fifteen percent of the life on the planet," and Moyer's just truly he he's flabbergasted by he say, Are you serious? And Wilson says, "Absolutely, we we there, the vast majority of life on the planet." We have not discovered yet. Now, if it was a, a, a crackpot saying that, that's one thing. But this is E.O. Wilson.
3: But he's not talking about lake monsters and Bigfoot. He's
0: talking he's, about life in general, species in no, general. He's, he's, ta-
3: he's talking about insect species and plant species and, and things like that. It, it, he's not talking about major mammals or reptiles. Those are known. There may be a very few left in remote and inaccessible areas that haven't been mm-hmm. cataloged. But no, I'm familiar with that. I mean, I've read that. And yes, and, but what he's talking about is insects, plants, all kinds of very small animals. Well, And, uh, and the, the the major large animals that scientists conceive may still exist are probably in ocean depths.
0: Right. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to make that point. I mean, we are no, discovering the, the, the major discoveries. Yeah. yeah, right. So, I mean, but what does that then tell you even? And and again, I mean, feel free to shoot this down. What does that tell you about the possibility, not the probability, but a possibility? And I don't know, I'm not necessarily saying I believe in this, but what about the possibility of a technologically advanced species coexisting on the planet with us out of sight? I mean, do you, do you fly? I, I mean, th-
3: I would say the chances that are zero. Really? Yeah. You can, You just. You simply couldn't hide. You just couldn't do it. You. You could not exist without leaving massive evidence of your existence. It's. That's. I hear that argument every once in a while, and it's such an yeah. extraordinary claim that, and with all kinds of implications that it, it's just not. It's just not possible. It isn't happening. You know there. There are very strange things happening in the world. Obviously, we're interested in them. We try to document them. They right. happen every day, but. To say that, that this is being done by some kind of race that, of, with high technology, high achievement, that is able to hide itself, it's just not, not credible on any level that I can imagine. There's this guy who goes around, he invented this word, crypto-terrestrial, and he claims that there are huge, scientifically, technologically sophisticated civilizations living undetected by us and sharing the planet with us. I I think I would believe that that George Adamski's Venusians are real
0: before I believe that. Okay. Um, Well, I'm curious because, you know, we we on the Paracast, we're we're often uh, accused of of having specific agendas. I I don't think that we do. Um, You know, we're trying to sort of maybe potentially further the discussion here. And, you know, there are certain things we'll entertain early in our history. Of the show we had on uh, the U.S. representative for a one Swiss armed uh, one armed Swiss farmer, who you have uh, a very very small entry in the encyclopedia for, and I thank
2: you for that. Probably too uh, big as it is.
0: Well, well, no, oh, actually sure. there is a very interesting factoid that Jerry uh, uh, reveals in the encyclopedia, and that his current farm, his you know sort of his, his poor little farm, was purchased by his followers. I think that's really relevant. I don't think that that I don't know that I've ever read that anywhere else. I read it in your encyclopedia. I, I assume you did some due diligence to to say that, put that in print, knowing it's true, right?
3: Well, yeah, I, I wouldn't have. I my memory of that is pretty hazy. It's, but I wouldn't have written that if I didn't have good reason to believe that was true. Right. right. I think that that that's one way. We haven't talked about hoaxes, hoaxers. Not yet. But I think that, you know, one thing is that when somebody begins to produce clear photographs and and in multiple numbers of extraterrestrials and, um, you know, that sort of physical evidence, a person is a conscious hoaxer because you can have real experiences, real in quotation marks, that are really extraordinary, but they don't exist in a photographable way. Photographable way, and there are two kinds of contactees. There, there are apparently, you know, I think sincere contactees who believe they have encountered extraterrestrials or interdimensional intelligences, and they have channeled, you know, messages from these people, or they believe that they encountered them. Right. But they don't produce photographs. This is all something that exists in sincere testimony. But the the contactees who are consciously hoaxing. Are the ones who are producing the physical evidence and, and the photographs.
0: Well, and so it, and, that, and, and,
3: and there's also beyond that, independent reason to believe they're not telling the truth.
5: Right. Right.
3: Now, the particular individual you mentioned has one prominent uh, defender who's a, a very bright guy. He's an academic, and, and inexplicably to me, uh, defends this particular contactee and and the wisdom of his teachings and so on. And the reality of his experiences, and he has published on his website a big attack on my entry in the encyclopedia on this
0: particular <laughs> individual. So, I mean, not, su- not surprising.
2: Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits.
1: Ray Perkins, a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War, lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world. A woman not yet born, calling across centuries to him. Then, a coincidence leads him to his destiny Attack Attack. of the Rockoids, Rockoids. a novel in the grand science fiction tradition.
5: This is Leslie Kane, and I'm with the Coalition for Freedom of Information, and you are listening to The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney.
2: We're pleased to talk to UFO historian Jerome Clark covering all the ramifications of UFOs and related mysteries. And does that... By the way, is that harming UFO research to have the effect of tunnel vision not being able to accept the possibility that we have an ET phenomenon here and we have this global age-old phenomenon here and that we have to kind of figure out which path they go to and then get on with our work?
3: Well, I think that the problem is that And it's understandable, because that's what human beings think. It's this sort of either-or thinking, you know. Either they're all extraterrestrial visitors, or they're all extraordinary, supernatural, paranormal entities. And I I think that finally it occurred to me that, that maybe in some sense both sides of this debate had a point. And that, yes, there are extraordinary phenomena that have a UFO coloration that don't seem in any imaginable way, traceable to actual visitors from another planet or another solar system. And then there are some cases, the hardcore cases, that are hard to imagine any other explanation for. So when you look at what's out there, I think that you have to begin to to make distinctions between what's plausibly put into a a basket that says, you know, arguable extraterrestrial visitors, and then another basket that says, Arguably something else beyond current knowledge.
0: All right, so along those lines, Jerry, in your opinion, because I think your opinion has great weight here, a case that comes to mind in your memory of something that fits either or both categories, one where you think, okay, this is clearly uh, a sign of what appears to be extraterrestrial visitation versus this is clearly a sign of what appears to be something else. Can you give us one example in each category? that springs to mind.
3: Well, the RB-47 case, which occurred in 1957, which is extensively documented in a long paper by Brad Sparks in my UFO encyclopedia, where there's an encounter with with the UFO and there's all kinds of extraordinary... There's radar tracking by several radars over several states. There's radar tracking on the RB-47. All kinds of bizarre kind of... um, Electronic things going on—that is an event. That is an interaction with somebody else's technology.
0: Is there anything to you that indicates uh, intelligently manned versus a robotic technology?
3: Well, I think that I think that 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 C threes are part of the event phenomenon. I believe that yes, I believe that some of these craft are occupied by biological entities. And uh, it's just that as you go farther and farther, for example, there there are cases in the book, and my memory is a little hazy because I, I finished writing this book about 1996, <laughs> so it's been a while. But there there's a one story in the book that I remember, it's probably one of my favorite stories, about the guy that this couple meet in a bar in uh, Ohio, in rural Ohio, this guy with the, the mouth and the bizarre behavior. And uh, it's, it, I don't remember all the details, but it's almost a funny story. And I I I wrote the case based on a tape of an interview that the witness had done that that an that a UFO investigator had done with the witnesses. And the and these were very rural people, very naive, almost cliched, you know, kind of uh, stereotyped rural people. I live out here in rural America, so these people seem rural even to me (laughs) (laughs) and uh, you know they're telling a story about this encounter with some kind of clearly not exactly human individual and later on the witness went to the restaurant bar to talk with the people who had been working there that night to ask what they had seen because this couple had described behavior uh, that it was really very, very strange. And the waitress said, well, there was somebody there. There was a stranger there. But she hadn't noticed anything unusual about it." And this is often the case that this a very strange experience may be reported. And it may be reported while others are around who are potential verifying witnesses. But who themselves haven't seen anything out of the ordinary. It's as if these experiences kind of focus on a small on an individual or a small group of people. Now the British ufologist Jenny Randall describes what she calls the the Oz factor. And the Oz factor is this sense of being taken outside ordinary reality to witness some extraordinary Phenomena such as a big UFO. In cases like this, people may be driving down a heavily trafficked highway at rush hour. And all of a sudden, they have the sense that there's no traffic. There's nobody else around. But in front of them is some extraordinary UFO, some extraordinary entity. And the experience plays out over a period of seconds or minutes and seems very real, except for the witness's extraordinary sense that reality is familiar yet different. That mm-hmm. The landscape, it's the same landscape, except not the landscape that you would expect to encounter at that particular moment. And so there's this kind of uh, aspect to it that's very strange. When I was researching the awful encyclopedia, and looking through primary documents on UFO sightings as far back as the 50s, the 40s, I found that in some cases witnesses described exactly what Jenny Randall in the 1980s first wrote about. The sense of being, in some mysterious way, in a landscape that is familiar yet different.
0: There's a term that, that I've assigned to that because... In my own personal experiences, and uh, uh, the very close friend of the show, Jeff Ritzman, who's a very intense experiencer, um, there is this sense of things becoming uh, very different. I- I've dubbed it hyper reality, where it's almost like things have that extra sheen. Everything is buzzing, and you have this sense that things are are like more real than real, and The thing is, probably the closest thing you could compare it to would be uh, the beginnings, the onset of a hallucinogenic experience. Um,
3: That's exactly what I was thinking as you were saying.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Which indicates a shifting in brain chemistry, which, see, the problem with that, Jerry, is that then there are people who will say, okay, that is a sign then of altered brain chemistry. Now you can't really trust your perception because maybe you're not perceiving what's really there, your brain chemistry is now getting in the way. There are other people who would then say, well, what that actually is is that the only way that your sensory input devices can perceive that stuff is for your brain chemistry to shift into a slightly different mode so that now maybe your frequency response capabilities have changed. And, and of course, the problem being I think that both sides can make an argument that they can, they can put some logic into, and then they, of course, have to appeal to some emotion at some point, but you can find logic to both of that. So, Well,
3: any, anything that happens to you
0: is experienced through the brain. I mean, that is not the yes. end of the
3: discussion. Absolutely. Of course, your brain is going to adjust itself to deal with all kinds of stimuli, even you know stimuli that we experience in quotidian life. Your brain isn't always operating the same way, but that doesn't mean it isn't happening. Or that it's imaginary. It just means that your brain is operating a little different way. Carol Zaleski, who wrote, I think, one of the best books I've ever read on near-death experience, he's a religious historian. And that's what she said, that, that people you know, try to look at states of brain, brain states, and say, well, that explains the near-death
0: experience. She said,
3: no, it doesn't. It just means that this is the way the brain receives this input.
0: Mm-hmm. It doesn't explain it. It's enough to drive you crazy. Uh, at the end of it all because like you said before there's this thing about objectivity is it is it really possible for anybody to be truly objective i mean and the answer is maybe not maybe we all bring our cultural conditioning and our life experiences to the table when talking about this um,
3: i've always said that the beginning of maturity is the realization that you can be wrong and you can be wrong even about <laughs> things that you're certain you're right about And so I think that, you know, as I get older, just dealing with life in general and anomalistics and specifics, I think, you know, I don't want to fool myself. I really don't have any emotional investment, really, anymore in any particular explanation. Except perhaps I think I am intellectually and inevitably emotionally invested in the idea that genuine anomalies which we, which are resistant to conventional explanation do occur in the world. To me, that is, as far as I'm concerned, really not subject to argument anymore. What, what concerns me is how we construct a framework for thinking about these things. Perhaps the construction of a framework is as important, maybe more important, than explaining these things, just finding a way to think about them. So that, So, do you think, explanations may be beyond this, but ways of thinking about them aren't.
0: right and, and some would say then that maybe and I think valet has sort of alluded to this that maybe the exercise of creating that framework is the point for the experience to even happen i think he I think he does kind of allude to that and and, and I think there are other people who feel that that is a good possibility.
3: Well, all these things are happening within frameworks I mean, within a cultural framework. And uh, the the phenomena are not entirely cultural bound. There are are points where they are not, but in general they are. Now, here's an example of what I'm talking about. Years ago, back in the early 90s, I really got interested in, in trying to find evidence of phenomena that are controversial in the way UFOs are controversial but that are kind of analogous arguments from history. Mm
5: -hmm. And so
3: I got interested in the debate about the existence of mermaids and mermen, which is something I really didn't know very much about. So I did a lot of reading, and uh, I was just amazed to find that basically belief in these creatures was based on people's experiences of them, that this was not some kind of nebulous oral lore. That had no connection with anything else, but that the belief was driven by people's experiences, and these experiences are often so striking that even you know marine biologists who tried to explain them in conventional terms have been forced to come up with explanations. In other words, not just dismiss the sightings on hand, but say, okay, this person did see this, but here's what he really saw. Right. Well, there are problems with those explanations, but. Basically, people were seeing these things, experiencing these things, and they were also creating a folklore and a mythology about them. In the folklore and mythology, these mer creatures were basically human. That the import- that the most important thing about them was that they were human. They could speak. They had human intelligence and human personality. They could even change shape. For example, a mermaid could. Change shape and live on land and marry a man and even have children with him, but at some point return to the sea and resume her former shape. So there are these kinds of supernatural traditions around mermaids and mermen. But if you read the sighting accounts, there is one thing about them that is absolutely consistent, with no exception that comes to mind. And I've examined hundreds and hundreds of these accounts, and found many of them that, 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 that really had long been forgotten in my research. People who saw these things thought of them as animals. They never referred to these creatures as he or she. It was always it. The creatures did not speak. They did not seem to be human. They, if they emitted any sound, it was kind of a squawk or a squeak. There was no communication. Nobody ever thought that, even with the the human-like appearance of at least the top half of the entity, that this was an intelligent entity. This was some kind of animal. Now, I'm not arguing that mer-beings actually exist. There are all kinds of good reasons to believe they don't exist. There's no evidence for their physical existence. Their biological existence is impossible. Nonetheless, are these extraordinary, this is extraordinarily compelling testimony, which I would put in the category of the experience anomaly. But the experience anomaly is not entirely driven by the folklore. It also has a character and of its own, its own dynamics, which I think is very interesting and, and very puzzling.
0: What, what do you think it tells us? It, it, do we have some sort of um... Interdimensional breach where we have creatures who may, and this is something that I know we've spoken about on the show, this idea that, for example, the fear that is generated in abduction experiences. There are some people who feel that this, this emotional energy is literally a source of new nu- nutrition, perhaps for some sort of being. Are, are we dealing with something that is Perhaps comparable to that, where, you know, for example, this whole idea of um, our belief systems perhaps creating manifestations from some sort of a dimensional hole that then, you know, sort of show up to us and, and, and in that sense are tailored to the individual because the individual is taking part in eliciting that manifestation and that that is a kind of a closed loop experience that perhaps other people present could perceive. Um, but very often
2: they don't, where you, you know, have someone who's seeing something. I wanted to tell everybody that we're yeah. about to break for our hourly break. And then we'll have Jerry answer the question about our belief systems and how they interact with this perception. Jerry, do you have a website that people can visit to learn more about the things you do?
3: No, I don't. But I but I'm all if you Google my name, Google Jerome Clark, I appear to be all over the internet for good and ill. (laughs) You can read my admirers, you can read my detractors. You can read those uh, who say, What is this guy talking about? (laughs) I have have also written books, old good old fashioned books which which in which I go into greater detail about my thinking. I have an article Experience anomalies in the current issue of 40th Times, which people may find interesting.
2: We'll get into they that want to too. What I'm saying. We'll get into that too on part two of the Powercast.
4: Welcome back to the Powercast with Gene Steinberg and David Yee.
2: On part two of the Powercast, we have UFO historian Jerome Clark. And by the way, we mentioned at the beginning there we asked Jerry about whether he has a website. He doesn't. He suggested Google, I also suggest Wikipedia where you can get a basic biography of what he does and then begin your extensive search beyond that. So, before we ended the previous session of the show, David asked you a question about the impact of one's belief systems in what they perceive. So, where do we take that?
3: Well, I don't think that you necessarily have to hold a particular set of beliefs to the experience, the extraordinary. I think that the, that these experiences are fashioned out of a kind of larger cultural sense. But people, both, you know, people who are believers and people who are hardcore skeptics have in common experiences of the extraordinary. You don't, it doesn't really depend. It can, in some instances, depend upon your mental set. But these things seem to happen on some kind of place where anybody could stumble into it i don't think that you i mean you can go out looking for it and maybe you'll find it but you don't even have to believe it exists or is possible to have the experience it just is a it's just something that happens to human beings of all kinds and all kinds of mental sets and beliefs and non-beliefs and so on
0: well, well now that's an interesting point jerry has anybody ever done a compilation, a statistical analysis of the psychological makeup of people who... And maybe it's a subset of people who have seen a UFO... Uh, instead of everybody who's seen a UFO, for example, all claimed abductees. I mean, do, do you know of any kind yes, of... There are, there number, yeah,
3: there have been a number of psychological profiles uh, done of individual, you know, claimants and also populations of claimants. And... Um, they're really indistinguishable from ordinary people. There have been one or two studies that show that abductees have something in common with the profile of people suffering post-traumatic stress disorder. There's some evidence of that, but basically, uh, the, the the findings just basically suggest these are normal people.
2: Oh, okay. There's, there's but what is the stress there? Is the stress generated by the experience or something else in their lives?
3: No. It, this the, the, the psychologist who did the study thought that. You know, he didn't want to speculate about what a UFO abduction is, but he said that if you had this experience, you had this frightening, overwhelming experience, your psychological profile would probably look like this. The abduction experience, you know, I've dealt with UFO abductees for years, going back to the, probably the late 1960s was the first case that I ever investigated. And it's a very frightening experience. It's something I would not want to happen to me. I mean, I I wouldn't mind it. I have had odd experiences, but this is what I would not want to have. It's just simply overwhelming. it's it's personally can be devastating. And it's really not a pleasant experience. And it it is very real to those who undergo it and, and terrifying most of the time.
0: We have to put you on the spot, Jerry. What's your weirdest, odd experiences you've personally had well, that you're willing to talk about?
3: <laughs> here, here's why I've written about this. In um, the summer of uh, 2000, I used to have a little office here in a little town that I live in. It was separate from where I live. My office now is in my home. But I used to work there. So I worked till late in the evening. And I was coming home about 10.30 one night. And I got out of the car. And I noticed on the front steps some kind of shadowy form that looked like some kind of big quadruped was lying on the front steps. Now we have a large quadruped in our house. His name is Misha, she's our dog. But she's never in the front yard. We have our we have a big fenced-in backyard where she runs around. Mm-hmm. But she's never in front because there's no fence there, and she'd wander away. So I thought, what's Misha doing on the front steps? Why is she lying there? And then as I looked again I realized this was I couldn't figure out exactly what I was looking at. That it had sort of the outline of a large quadruped, but I couldn't see anything more clearly than that. And of course, it was in the in light and shadow. And so I started walking toward it and this thing got off the steps and began moving off at an angle uh from me across our the west end of our front lawn, and I just couldn't get a good look at it. I just could not see what it was. It was as if it just stayed in the shadow, and I, I was I could follow it, but I couldn't figure out what I was following. And then right. it it uh, vanished in in our in our neighbor's front yard, and the exact same. And I did not, by the way, jump the conclusion that I'd had an extraordinary experience. I thought that I had had seen some kind of Real but unfamiliar animal. And it did not, I, it absolutely did not occur to me this was an extraordinary experience. Except that the, the same thing happened exactly a couple of weeks later. That the experience was exactly repeated. And I believe that it, that it happened one more time. And then finally the climax was, we happened, my mother uh, needed assistance. She called us in the middle of the night. So my wife and I got up. My mother has a crippling disease. and So we went over there to help her. This is about 3.30 in the morning. We come back to our place, and we came back to our place. And this was the first time that I had been with somebody else, namely my wife. And I told her about this experience, these experiences, which are very puzzling to me. And all of a sudden, I looked on the front steps, and there it was again. And I shouted to my wife, there it is, and I ran as fast as I possibly could, determined that I was going to catch up with this creature and figure out what it was. And again, I was still in the mindset that this had to be some animal. And they, everything happened as before, but I just could not catch up with it. And it headed off in the same direction and just seemed to fade away. And by, By that time this had happened, I realized that something very strange was going on. And since then, as I've thought about this a lot, I almost had the sense that what I was seeing was not something, but more like the idea of something.
0: Oh, man. We're
3: seeing something in some kind of transitional state.
0: Okay, so... What you just said, Jerry, is absolutely fascinating. Uh, Listeners to the show know that with a a very close friend of mine, we had a a shared experience in Florida where we witnessed at close range a full-body apparition of a girl whose eyes, mouth were perpetually in shadow. We, We got close to her. We watched her very close up, maybe 15 feet away. And then we watched her... Move away from us and dematerialize. We watched all of this happen, mm. and and the reason I bring this up is that I, I've been asked more than a few times now. Now that I've, I've gone public about this story, people ask me, "What do you think she was a ghost?" And I said to them, "I had this overall sense when we were looking at her that she didn't represent a person; that she represented an emotion, mm. and and I refer to it as the sort of the pain of adolescence or the uh, you know the it, it, she didn't represent a specific person. It's as if she represented, like what you just said, an idea, yeah, manifest as 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 some form of material thing. But then we watched her dematerialize right in front of us, as if to remind us that this was not someone. It represented, the, or you know, the other thing that I thought of was sort of the the sadness of lost youth, and mm-hmm. and what you just said is is essential because it it really. It nails it it's an idea it's a, what you what you saw was not a specific manifestation of some specific creature but something that represented something else and that maybe was meant to with some success in you evoke a sense of awareness of that
3: yes I think that that's well said that's well said It was. It was a very. Another thing that struck me about it, and I wrote about this. I did the uh, Journal of Scientific Exploration asked me one time to do an autobiographical essay about my life as an anomalist, and I wrote this thing called Among the Anomalies. And I just it opens with my account of this experience. And another thing that struck me about it was my utter resistance to the idea that this was extraordinary. That I absolutely, I mean, I could have accepted that somebody else had an experience like this. I couldn't accept that I did. And it took, it was some time, it was several weeks before I could accept that this was an experience without explanation. Mm
5: -hmm.
3: That I was so fixated on explaining it and explaining it in conventional terms as some animal that had wandered into my front yard and was lying inexplicably on my front steps
0: so per- but, perhaps the idea was to tell you that not everything could be quantified in the sense that perhaps you'd like to
3: well you know i can't tell what there's you know any effort to to give some kind of attention to this nebulous stimulus is is impossible it's what you make of it you know and and, and mm-hmm. all i i learn from it that To me, this was sort of like a representation of the huge ambiguity that covers these kinds of experiences, these kinds of phenomena. But I don't know that that was the point of it. I mean, maybe it had no point. It was just all that I made of it. It didn't lead to anything else. There was no moral to the story. Right, Um, right. Nothing. It just happened. And whatever there was to make of it, I had to make of it myself.
0: Uh, I think there is the lesson there. I mean, I'm, what I'm hearing is that you did learn something that that did have a purpose. I mean, look, that, there are different ways. No, of, I don't
3: know that it had a
0: purpose. Whatever no. purpose it had was one that I made of it. Right, but but maybe that was the purpose, <laughs> not to yeah. get. You know, I, I look. It's all. You know, we can you know fall off this edge and go into a philosophical discussion. I just think. I really, I, I very closely identify with what you said. It didn't represent some a, a creature; represented an idea. Yeah. Uh, to me, to me, there's a clue there, and it's a very elusive clue. But there is a clue there, and sometimes I think that's what some of these other phenomena actually mean. That's the purpose they have. And I'm not trying to say, okay, let's now put that into a specific box. This is a control system. Right? No, no. It, it just. What you, you, When we talk about this, it is so hard to be specific about things. It, it, it's as if this whole, all of the, the anomalous stuff, and by the way, I, I love the, the term uh, anomalies versus the unknown. I mean, I'm, I, I'm, I'm considering sort of adopting that. I hope you don't mind. I, I think this, this uh, statement in that uh, piece that you wrote for 40 and Times, that you're, you like to think of yourself as an anomalist um I think that uh, I, I I'm starting to get to that point personally myself as someone who's had a large range of experience and trying to sort of put them in some sort of an understandable fashion that the boxes don't really make much sense here and and you know we, we like to put things in boxes as humans but maybe maybe this is not the nature of this
3: I think you know uh, my lifelong interest in anomalies generally be just beyond ufology
5: mm-hmm.
3: really gave me a broader perspective to look at these kinds of things. I think that if you, if you spend all your time reading UFO literature investigating UFO cases in the interest of, say, establishing uh, the extraterrestrial hypothesis, you're really not going to understand a lot of what you encounter. Right. Not that there aren't cases out there that lend themselves to that interpretation, but there's also a lot of the stuff that doesn't. Absolutely and you either you can you know, you can start expanding your definition of the ETH till it's finally meaningless <laughs> or you can or you can just reject anything that you can't cram into that box. But it seems to me that, that a healthy approach leaves this open to more than, than you know, one or two explanatory frameworks.
2: I'll tell you what, before we put any more things into a box... I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception. Because I want outstanding AM reception. Day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that C-Crane's CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception. Which is exactly what C-Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band, they work just like memory buttons in your car, a sleep timer. An alarm clock so you can get up at the right time. And a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support this show by visiting techbroadcasting.com. That's techbroadcasting.com slash Crane to order the CC Radio Plus for one sixty-four ninety-five, and that includes free ground shipping and a free Sea Crane catalog. Place your order today.
5: You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast.
2: talking to anomalist Jerome Clark this week, and we're covering a lot of ground. But let's look at the sandbox called ETH for a moment. As you know, there have been ongoing attempts over the years, starting with Major Donald Kehoe, to get some sort of disclosure. Right now, there's somebody trying to get 40,000 signatures to give to President-elect Obama by January for his inauguration, saying, disclose, disclose, disclose. Worth doing or not? What do you think?
3: Well, uh, <laughs>
2: uh,
3: I mean, I, you know, I mean, I, I don't doubt that the U.S. government has UFO secrets. I don't know that if it, it has the secret, <laughs> but it probably knows about some interesting cases, particularly you know, military cases, and so on. That probably be very interesting to know about, and may, maybe even a little alarming because these are cases that perhaps bear on national security questions. But you know, I. Uh, I don't think that I really believe there's, a, there's this huge cover up, and all the answers that are buried somewhere at the Pentagon or, or uh, you know, at some hangar at Wright like, Patterson Air Force Base. And I think that some of these groups that are pushing this I mean, there are responsible groups. NICAP was a responsible group back in the 50s and 60s that, labored for, that lobbied for uh, congressional hearings at the UFOs and the Air Force's handling. I think that was legitimate. But I think that some of these groups really seem to be really kind of these current groups that I witness are really um, making themselves look very foolish in the way they Mm -hmm. press for this particular project. Not that it isn't worth doing, it's just a question of how you do it. And if you go around loudly announcing that the U.S. government has proof that extraterrestrials are visiting the earth and is covering it up, you better have a lot better evidence than has been demonstrated so far.
0: Well, given the amount of information you've you've compiled, Jerry, and given how deeply uh, it looks like you've looked at this, uh, what would be your opinion? And we're not, no definitive answers here. Uh, what would be your opinion as to what the government does know about this?
3: Well, you know, the the whole question may be skewed the way you raise it. And, of course, it's not just you, it's a question that's often raised that way. What does the government know? Well, maybe the government.
0: Well, the right.
3: question doesn't even make any sense because maybe there are agencies of the U.S. government that have, for one reason or another, come up against this phenomenon, right. and presumably those agencies know more than some other agencies. Maybe even the guy in the next building knows more than the, than
0: that, than you do. That, that that's what it appears to be. I didn't want to you know yeah. sort of bring that up, but yeah, it, it does appear that there is some group inside of what we would call our government, our military, that big, big bucket, that there's some group in that bucket that has more knowledge than the rest of the bucket, and it almost seems like the rest of the bucket's getting a little pissed off at that, that maybe they feel that things are being kept from them, and that maybe there's a battle going on behind the scenes, maybe not even a battle, just a tug-of-war about...
3: I don't even know about that. I don't think they, that there are very many people in the U.S. government that really care very much. There may be a few who care, but I don't think most of them think about it. My cousin is a guy who spent most of his professional life at the highest level of national security. He was on the National Security Council. He was the head of the branch that tracked nuclear weapons in the hands of, of terrorists and the movement of These materials across national borders. He was in. He worked in the White House during the Clinton and early Bush administration. He was working in the White House on September 11th when planes crashed into the Pentagon. And uh, my my cousin has access to. He's retired now, but he's not a college professor. But he has access to all kinds of national security secrets that he would never tell me. That never do ask him about. But he thinks. I know that he thinks that UFOs are absolute nonsense, and uh, although he and I are very close on a lot of other levels, he thinks my interest in UFOs is inexplicable. (laughs) So, (laughs) you know, I think that, that I think overwhelmingly people in, in the U.S. government, even in really highly secure positions, are not interested in UFOs and don't think a lot of them. I think that within the government, of course, there are people who are curious. There are people, I'm sure, who have access to information that you and I don't have access to, who may have their suspicions. But I just don't think that, that the answers are there.
2: There's no silence group? No, I don't think so. What about the many in I think in black, that there are specific
3: cases that probably fall under national security. For example, a case that happens in some sensitive military or nuclear institution, and there probably are guys who handle that and go there and interview the witnesses and tell them not to talk about it, but they do that in the way they would do if there were any other kind of untoward incident with unsettling implications. They're not a specific UFO group. They just handle incidents. Mm
2: -hmm. So there's no silence group. There's no men in black or... Is there a Men in Black phenomenon? We had a lot of that stuff going on, especially in the fifties and sixties. Not so much today, or am I wrong?
0: Well, I think
3: Men in Black are part of the you know the experience anomalies. You know, you can have those experiences, but these aren't government guys. These are just things that happen that are you know in you know the kind of extraordinary perceptions. And uh, yeah, I think the Men in Black, in a sense, were invented by. Gray Barker and Al Bender back in 1953. Well, I think I think what really happened was that Bender, who was probably fairly highly strung, was interviewed by some FBI agents and just kind of went batty from an experience that probably unsettled him and frightened him. Although I doubt that they were threatening, as, as, as Bender and, and Barker made it out to be. And I think that this kind of legend of the silence group and the men in black kind of spun out of this rather ordinary event.
2: Then again, of course, where did John Keel get involved in that? Because well, I think we that, I trace mean, John Keel, of course, to the fact that that comic book, Men in Black, is based on the Keel concept, and of course the movie features the characters J and K.
3: Well, there are men in black experiences. I mean, I think that men in black experience are in the same category as so other kinds of, you know, bizarre. Supernatural kinds of experiences—they're experiences, they're not events. You know, men in black—you know—the notion of encountering the men in black goes deeply into into folklore, into you know, the pre-UFO age. The devil was often described as a man in black, and people reported even before we knew about UFOs encounters with menacing supernatural men in black. I mean, that's an old kind of notion, but I think that that in the ufo context the first appearance of men in black is 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 really is with gray barker's book they knew too much about flying saucers that's what i was talking about i think that that story is largely nonsense
2: sure bender became a contactee or said he was a contactee when he i don't think so
3: no i think (laughs) that book is just a bad science fiction novel a really bad science fiction novel
0: Well, just just also for for further reference, and I'm looking here in Volume 2 of the Encyclopedia, Jerry, and I'm not finding it right now, but there's a story in here that I had read previously and did some follow-up on about a a doctor who claimed that he had gotten this call from somebody said, I want to come speak to you, then he hung up the phone, went on to turn on the porch light, the guy was walking up the steps, Uh, you know, this odd character who supposedly had like some kind of weird lipstick on, who starts... You know which one I'm talking about. Yeah. So it's a really odd story, incredibly weird story. So what I did was make a long story short. About a year and a half ago, I did a little bit of research, and I got on the phone his nephew, and I asked his nephew about this. And he said, oh, you know, he said, "I, I, I don't want you to, like, write up anything on this or anything. He said, but my uncle had a drinking problem. It kind of came clear to the family that he made that whole thing up as a distraction because he was having some marital problems. Uh, there's a story about how the wife and I think the son were out when this went on, and that uh, they came home to find him really wasted. And he told the story, and they never put any weight in it, and there was nothing to suggest this was real. So, you know, obviously when we talk about this topic, and, and this is what the nephew told me. He said, you know, I've I've spoken to other people about this, and he said people are seem more content to just let the story stand as it is, then try to clarify it. And this is something I think we see coming up over and over again in the discussion of the history of the UFO uh, phenomenon. In that, you know, there's there's a certain amount of it that seems legitimate, and, and, and that's a you know maybe a, a difficult word, but there there's certain things that seem to be genuine phenomena playing out, and then there are other things that really are the byproduct of the human imagination. And that sometimes it is very difficult to differentiate between these things.
3: Oh yes, that's undeniably true. Absolutely, that's an interesting yeah. story. I don't think though that it necessarily discredits the testimony. Maybe not. I mean, I mean, it, I mean, it certainly doesn't enhance his credibility. But the guy could right. have been a hard drinker and still have a strange experience.
0: Absolutely. It, it stands in stark contrast though to something like uh, I'll talk about a photographic case. And when people ask me, "What's the best UFO?" You know, show me. David, is there like any good photography of UFOs? Is are there good UFO photos? And I say, well, actually, yeah, there are. Sadly enough, some of the best ones appear to have been taken a number of years ago. And and the one that I always cite is uh, from the the Trindade Trindade uh, of photos that uh, that were taken off the coast of this island from a photographer on a ship. And it's kind of interesting. During that, in your entry here, you really go the and this is where I was so impressed. I don't mean to be a uh, Uh, kissing your ass here but it really truly this is where I was so impressed by the research you did because to me this is an incredibly credible case as far as photographic evidence is concerned I think this is gold and then there was uh, this whole thing where uh, I guess it was what was Menzel started to uh, now throw this whole thing into question and came up with this whole alternate explanation that you you address here in the encyclopedia and you put it in its place Because I had seen this same issue as well, where now there were these voices saying, well, look at these specific photographs of, I think it was a Piper Cherokee or something, a plane, from a specific angle. Look, it looks just like these. And I look at that and I go, well, no, wait a minute. There's a series of photographs here. There is obvious atmospheric density between the camera and the object. Uh, There seems to be some self-illumination to this thing in a frame or two. It, again, to my mind, I look at this and I think, these, these are the most credible UFO photos I've ever seen. I think uh, Maccabee might have done some work on these. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, you, you look at that and you say, okay, well, this is an example where you have multiple witnesses. You have the Brazilian military involved. You have photographic evidence. It just doesn't get a whole lot better than this.
3: If you're looking for evidence of, you know, somebody else's spacecraft in our skies, it's cases like those that you look to.
0: Yeah, exactly. this is It's, it's yeah. rock solid. Along these lines, Jerry, and again, uh, your opinion, I think it has weight. It means a lot. What other photographic cases do you, have you researched that have the same impact as this one?
3: You know, since people walk around with handheld video cameras, there's a lot more footage of UFOs or claimed UFOs. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I don't, I'm not technically trained. So I don't investigate these cases. I'm dependent on the judgment and expertise of people who really know this stuff. And, and, And one of them whom you mentioned is the physicist Bruce McAbee, who's an expert photo analyst. And there are others who know what they're doing. I don't. I'm dependent on their judgments and their writings and their their analyses. One of the great cases, you know, from UFO history is the McMinnville, Oregon photographs.
0: Absolutely. Yes.
3: Show, you know, a structured craft in which debunkers have spent decades trying to demolish without success. You know, the really good cases, the hardcore cases, really do stand up over time.
5: Mm-hmm. If the
3: cases where the evidence is soft, when we're talking about this men and Black story, for example, where you know doubts begin to creep in over time but a case a good case holds up it doesn't eventually fall to a, a conventional explanation huh. stands up to repeated inquiry repeat analysis repeat attempts to knock it
2: down let's hold this up to the light of day
4: Hi, this is Roger with eFoodsDirect.com, and I just wanted to welcome everyone from the Paracast Show. Hi to Gene and David and everybody out there. Listen, we're here to sponsor this radio show because we really like what Gene and what Dave are doing, and we'd like you to help us support them. Now, we are a long-term storable food company. However, the foods that we produce are low-moisture foods. They're very, very high quality, and you can live on them every day. You can literally cut your grocery bill in half or more than half, maybe as much as 60%, by buying bulk foods from eFoodsDirect.com. But right now, a recession-slash-depression is on the way. We're advising people to sell the toys in the garage, hawk off the old jewelry you don't use, pour the money into food supplies before it's too late. I'm telling you, it could be too late. We also can provide water filtration, other needs... Call eFoodsDirect.com and let us continue to support Gene and David here. 800-715-4380, 800-715-4380, or go to eFoodsDirect.com. That's eFoodsDirect.com, 1-800-715-4380. You're the Powercast with Gene, Simon, and David ending. Yeah. You never know what's going to
5: happen next.
2: We're talking to anomalous Jerome Clark, and as our listeners know, listening to me right now, my voice has descended into a bad way for a few days, and hopefully it will be back next week, or maybe you don't care, and you'd rather have me not talk. But I want to talk about this. Let's talk about cases of some importance, at least in terms of publicity, of course. It seems that a lot of people put the whole UFO enigma on to the Roswell case. What is your opinion of that?
3: Well, I'm an agnostic on the Roswell case. I don't believe that it has been disproved. I don't believe that the mot- balloon explanation is in any way plausible. On the other hand, the opposite claim that this is the remains of an extraterrestrial spacecraft, including bodies, is one that um, I think that is well argued by some of the best investigators who really have done the work and spent years and years working on this. But my problem is that if this was the crash of an extraterrestrial spacecraft, a lot of things would have had to happen. This would not vanish into a black hole, that there would be developments that we could trace in subsequent public history, history of technology, national defense concerns, other kinds of things. This could not have happened and left no trace. Yes, you could keep it secret that a spaceship crashed and bodies were recovered. You could keep that secret. I believe that. But you couldn't keep the research that followed from that secret. That there would be specific technological developments that would be impossible to explain. There would be quantum leaps that seemed to come out of nowhere whose origin, of course, would have been really in classified research on the remains of the spacecraft. There's no evidence of that. There is nothing in the history of technology since the end of World War II or since 1947 that suggests the insertion into it of some kind of you know extraordinary revelations from research on an advanced extraterrestrial technology.
2: So we're not going to raise Philip Corso into the picture.
3: No, no, that's not. That story isn't true. That guy's a <laughs> hoaxer. But so you have you have this kind of paradox. You have the failure so far of you know conventional explanations, and then you have the extraordinary explanation, which doesn't make sense, notwithstanding some compelling testimonies from some apparently honest people. But so I don't think that we really know what happened at Roswell. There may very well be some kind of third explanation that hasn't occurred to anybody, that we that we don't know about yet. I think that where Ros- Roswell is concerned it's just best to suspend judgment and await further developments, if any.
0: So basically, do you feel then that it has become, in a sense, a distraction that maybe takes away attention from more contemporary cases like the case that uh, I'm fascinated by, but I'm, I'm somewhat confused by at this point, the Rendlesham case, which I know you've covered to some extent in the encyclopedia. I read uh, uh, the book that Peter wrote with Larry, Left at Eastgate, and there were parts of it I found highly compelling. There are parts of it I found, I found downright bizarre. Bizarre, not in the high strangeness way, but bizarre in a, that doesn't it make any sense way. at all. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, what's your what's your take on that? I mean something seems to have happened. And and, and I think this is, again, in, 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 in the same way that we know something happened at Roswell, something happ- happened at Rendlesham. What do you think, Jerry? What do you make of that case?
3: Well, I think the Rendlesham case, I mean, there there are straightforward accounts of it based upon the best and most credible testimony that really you know, do reconstruct the case in a way that makes sense. I think the problem is that some of the individual, not very many, but it wouldn't take more than one or two, who I think uh, what's a nice word, sort of
0: problematic,
3: extrapolated or exaggerated, and I think that their testimony really confused things. But there are some fairly straightforward accounts of it that I've seen that that you know that that, that do make sense. That do seem consistent with the the best testimony. One of the problems, of course. Unlike with Rendlesham, which was investigated soon after its occurrence, but Roswell, nobody's even looking at this until about 30 years later.
5: Right. Right.
3: And um, and so you have all these people with you know fading memories, literally dying off, and then you have hoaxers. There's just Roswell attracted hoaxers, like you know rotting food attracts flies. You know. Oh well, sure. You know so you, you have a lot of people like Frank Kaufman who um, who write themselves and the story, of become major informants. people are really dependent on their testimony, and then at some point it collapses
0: right but at the same time then you have people like Jesse Marcel jr right yeah,
3: who You're also have credible people
0: yeah, I mean, we had him on the show for the second time recently and and Jesse's a guy you know Gene and I have spoken to him more than a, more than once now. I find Jesse to be. In my opinion, totally credible. Uh, I, oh, I, I not I completely agree with you. Right. Agree so, you. so he doesn't. He doesn't draw conclusions from a lot of the stuff. Basically, you know, it, it's about, gee, Jesse, what did you handle that night? That your father walks in with this stuff, and and there are people say, well, how can you trust the memory of an eleven year old? And it's like, well, there are certain things, you know, I wouldn't trust them about day to day a life necessarily from that part of their 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 history, but certainly a really extraordinary event like that, you would think that they would have a pretty clear memory of. I know in my life, uh, there are extraordinary events that I went through at that age that I have extremely clear memories of. So, you know, when, when you have someone like Marcel who's describing something that, to, to his mind, and again, how much did he know about material science when he was 11? Probably not a whole lot, but he's describing something that doesn't fit any conventional explanation I look at that, and I think, well, then, clearly something went on. And, and like in the case in Rendlesham, I don't know the name of the officer, the one who said he was out there touching the craft, that he had the notebook that he made notes in, just you know, drawing the symbols he saw in the craft. You have something like somebody like him, and I think, what has he got to gain from making these statements? Because, of course, motivation, human motivation, is so critical in any of this. You know, you look at the Billy Meyer case. Well, we, we, can, we can make sense of the human motivation there for why this guy set himself up as a cult leader, okay? That's pretty clear. But when you have a, a, a member of the military, a serviceman who is describing something and, 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 and has his notebook where he made his notes and he's reading from that notebook, you look at that and, and, and again, it's like some things are almost self-evident, we're saying, yeah. like, okay, that, that person, I, I, I believe what they're saying because it, it makes sense. There's internal logic to what they're saying. They're saying it in a way that is credible. They're not making outrageous claims. They're not, they're not drawing a vector from A to B to, to, to X and saying, okay, this is what happened, therefore, and, and when, you know, when I think of this, I think of a guy by the name of David Sarita has one UFO experience when he's a kid, and as an adult, he's completely lost his mind, and now he thinks he knows how the UFO propulsion system works from one sighting. It's like, well, okay, you went off the deep end, and that's fine. We can basically now uh, attenuate our opinion about uh, about your opinion, because we know where you're coming from. But with like some of these people who are at the Rendlesham, involved with the Rendlesham case, like, like Charles Holt, or the name of this officer whose name I'm forgetting, who said he touched the craft. He was right up looking at it. Right. It's hard to discount that. I mean, basically, you can't discount that. So, to what do you attribute then, Jerry, this idea that there's all this attention paid to Roswell, but in the case of the Rendlesham case, it's it's a lot of people who are interested in the topic, they don't know about it. Is it just a is it a branding exercise?
3: Well, I think that I mean the Roswell case has the potential. You know, to be the case, because you actually have, at least, you not actually, but allegedly have wreckage in bodies. And that's really the, the holy grail of the extraterrestrial hypothesis wreckage in bodies. And that's what all these skeptical scientists will say. Well, I won't believe you unless you can produce wreckage in bodies. So, Roswell offers a lot more, unfortunately, than it can produce. And I think that the deeper that people have gone into Roswell, I think they, they come, they're coming back with more questions than answers. And I think that, in, in effect, as you suggest, it's really become a huge distraction.
0: Yeah. That it, it's,
3: it did not it, deliver.
0: It passed it, into mythology, ultimately. It's become mythology. And it's taken on a life bigger than any kind of realism or rationality you could ever approach it with. The
3: truth may be unrecoverable. You know, we may go to our graves not knowing really what happened.
2: That <laughs> assumes, though, so Jerry, that assumes, of course, that we didn't recover wreckage from that craft, that we didn't pack it away somewhere in Area 51 or at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base or in some government warehouse catching dust.
3: Well, if it's there, it's it's been there for a long time and may be there for a long time yet to come, and there's not much you or I can do about it. The investigators of Roswell, and some of them are friends of mine, they are good people, they are hard-working, conscientious people. But all they have been able to produce is a body of really interesting and intriguing testimony. But they haven't been able to settle this, and they just raised questions. You know, why, for example, the question that I raised earlier, why does this thing disappear into history? Why is there no trace of this event in subsequent history?
2: Well. And, and
0: I'll answer that. It's interesting about the UFO phenomenon, Jerry, in that I personally, and this is going to really frustrate some of our listeners, but I can tell you from my own personal experience, having in 1974 been part of a mass sighting in Caracas, Venezuela, of a massive cigar craft which emitted discs, which positioned themselves around the cigar. The whole thing vanished Thousands of people saw this. It is proving to be almost impossible to find any kind of documentation about this. I've got a guy in Venezuela who has one of the main blogs in in Venezuela about UFOs trying to do research to, to recover from me micro features of the front page of at least one paper the next morning that had uh, massive write-ups about this. I don't remember there being photographic evidence, but certainly there was was a major amount of press coverage the next day of this episode. It was witnessed by supposedly thousands of people. There's no record of it in any of the UFO literature that exists. There's nothing. I, I was there. I was there. I was part of it. Uh, I'm telling you, I saw it happen. My my brother, my parents, thousands of people saw this. There is no record of it. One of the things that has always interested me about human history is what is the documented history versus what actually happened? And I know that you have some interest in this, too, as as, uh, I know in some early correspondence that you and I had, and maybe I shouldn't even bring this up right now, but... My first interaction with you was via email, and I want to apologize to you for that. Um, oh,
3: you don't have anything to apologize
0: for? <laughs> well, well, no, 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 because it, it, there was this thing where we had someone on who we probably shouldn't have had on, and we gave her a really hard time. She went on a, a on a list and made noise about it, and then I saw that you had made some comment, and in typical Bietni fashion, um... You know, not honestly, not knowing a ton about your background. I did my little Warpath thing, and oh, and I probably no, and 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 I apologize. Wait, wait, I, I've done the same thing myself. Don't worry. All about right, well, okay, but no. But the point is that you know there is this whole uh, in that exchange. You indicated to me that you're you're a man of many interests, and uh, you are very interested by by history, early history. And you've gone back in, and, and obviously in the compilation of the encyclopedia, you've acted very much as a historian in, in, in a very specific, very focused way. So I don't have to tell you that there is a what I perceive to be a huge differential by the history that is documented versus what has actually happened. And like in the political arena, there are authors like Howard Zinn who have documented to, to a fairly deep degree... With all sorts of data to back it up, you know, you know, here's the history of the United States as, you know, known in the history books. Now, here's the other history of the United States. And probably somewhere between those two things lies the reality. And so, you know, when we talk about episodes, specifically UFO episodes, uh, I suspect that some of the most fantastic UFO episodes that have ever happened are not documented anywhere and have vanished into the sands of history
2: I'll tell you what before this show goes in the sands of history Fate magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue that's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown keep up with the latest on angels and miracles psychic phenomena ghosts UFOs life after death and much much more It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits.
3: Hi, this is Matt Opkins, and you're listening to the Powercast with Gene Steinberg, David Jedney, and I completely enthusiastically endorse this program. It's an absolutely great program with an opportunity to stretch out and talk.
2: We have one more session to spend with Jerome Clark, anomalist, and we're talking about important events vanishing in the sands of history. And just if you look, for example, at our recent election, one of the most covered Presidential elections ever if you watched the fair and Balance station if you watch Something with a more progressive bent you saw two different campaigns You saw two different events if you read about it in the newspapers depending on the particular bent of the publisher and or editor or both You saw completely different things so we can't figure out what happened two weeks ago and get the real story how are we going to figure out what happened with a UFO event like Roswell That happened 60 some odd years ago, lost in the sands of time for 30 years and suddenly comes back. What about, for example, the Aztec event where we had that book from Frank Scully and they dismissed one or two of the people that he used as sources as being hoaxers or crooks and a story until Scott Ramsey picks it up and says, you know, there's something to it.
3: Is it, are you asking me a question?
2: I'm giving a comment, and I kind of well, think maybe <laughs> you have a few to offer. I'll <laughs> yeah, then go, let, let, other let, than let go say, somewhere and, and and stay there, you know.
3: <laughs> let, let, let me say something about writing history. And, I, you know, I've been reading history since I was a little kid. And uh, when I finally sat down to write the Encyclopedia, I realized I was writing history, that I was going to become, you know, one of the de facto historians of this controversial subject. And I really understood a lot of things. By the time I finished this, I understood a lot more about what history is and how it's written. And history is not some kind of platonic ideal or objective phenomenon. That, That events, as they happen, are random. We don't know what to make of them. And in retrospect, what we make of them really is a judgment. History is based on what our judgment of what was really important mm-hmm. and what followed from what. Now these this isn't science. I mean you try to do your best. You try to think hard, you try to be as empirical and as rational and as logical as you can be. But ultimately, as you write the history, you are deciding what was important, what wasn't important. Right. How B followed from A, and so on and so on. And when my encyclopedia was published, there were people who knew the materials, not many of them, fortunately, but some. And and I'm not saying they were wrong. They may have had a point saying, look, you overlooked this. You didn't appreciate the significance of that. And I would always say to them, well, you know, you're entitled to that opinion. It doesn't sound unreasonable. So write your own history.
5: <laughs>
3: and, and any historic, I mean, even that includes great historians, Howard Sin has, has his version of American history. Right. There are other informed scholars who have their vision of American history and somehow you read it all and you make one judgment. It was like, it was as Walter Lippmann said of, of a free press, a free press doesn't mean that you read one newspaper and know everything
0: that you need to know. No, absolutely not. That
3: means you read a whole bunch of newspapers and then make your own judgment.
0: So, given that you have had a vast experience in analyzing and plowing through a huge amount of material, is there any advice you can offer to our listeners to differentiate signal from noise?
3: Well, I find that I'm a great believer in empiricism and a great believer in science and, uh, you know, a great believer in razor-sharp thinking, and I really have very little patience with thinking that strikes me as fuzzy or, you know, ideologically driven to an unreasonable degree. Mm -hmm. And and skepticism doesn't mean just rejecting things mindlessly, right? although there's much to be skeptical about, of course. No, but that's
0: debunking. Debunking is rejecting stuff out of hand. But not skeptical. Well,
3: I form. mean, there's a role for debunking. There are things that should be debunked.
0: Absolutely.
3: But but debunking as a guiding ideology is really a dead end. Just as is as, as really kind of ultra credulity is a dead end. Mm-hmm. The things aren't all one thing or another. That you really have to make precise judgments at all times. You, I think you know you skepticism is best employed in when you look at. Meanings of things. You know, meaning of the phenomenon. There's a whole literature of people trying to discern its meaning. And very little of that writing, unfortunately, is very good. There's some of it. <laughs> oh, but, man. but the ufology, you know, still for all its failings, and it has many failings, but it does actually have an intellectual tradition. And one thing in the UFO Encyclopedia, I tried to show what that intellectual tradition is, and it is an evolving effort by thoughtful people to make sense of things that really are very hard to get a grasp on. Mm -hmm. And there are people who have have done good work, and, and there are people who I think that probably are fundamentally wrong, but still have brought some good ideas into a discussion which finally came to, from my point of view mistaken conclusions, but did raise legitimate issues. For example, I think Jacques Vallée is, a, is an interesting and thoughtful guy who I think really went off the rails at some point, but did raise many legitimate questions that ufologists really could not ignore. For example, in Passport to Maconia, Vallée is the guy who shows that very lore traditions are analogous in some interesting ways to the modern you know, UFO phenomenon. I think that Ballet was wrong about how those two things line up, but he was right to raise that question. And he offered other interesting ways of looking at, the, at these things. And I think that, you know, the best ufologist, and I'm, I'm probably describing myself, maybe I'm just as wrong, will be ultimately just as wrong. But at least I hope that I raise questions and ways of seeing that were in some way productive, even if in the end, those who took up the questions come to different answers.
2: We only have a few minutes left. And since we don't have a website of yours to plug, do you have any books coming out or articles in addition to the one called Experience Anomalies in the Fortean Times? Anything else coming out in the near future?
3: Well, I'm working on a book that I've been working on for a long time. And I hope to finished before I leave this earth. I don't have any books coming out currently. I am the book review columnist for Fate Magazine. I am one of the editors of the International UFO Reporter, which is published by the Center for UFO Studies, and which is, I believe, the best UFO magazine in the English language, and which really deserves a big, much wider readership than it has. I would encourage people to look up the J. Allen Hynek Center for UFO Studies on the web
2: and subscribe to IU. UFO. Jerry, send me a web banner for that site, and I'll stick it on the Powercast site and get you a few visitors, okay? Make it as a public offer because we certainly appreciate that and I knew Dr. Hynek very very casually in those days so anything that honors his memory and research but that's also the point too this is another interview subject where do we take UFO research from here because have we really gained that much understanding of what's going on other than gee there are a lot of things happening that we can't figure out where do we take it from here where do we go how do we make progress
3: well, ultimately, this has to be handed to the scientists. Only scientists have the the resources and the expertise to really grapple with the questions. And they meet the immediate question, of course, is the one raised by the anomalous event, the hardcore events, the close encounter, to the second kind, the radar visuals, etc. Those are eminently investigatable. But they require resources, they require laboratories, they require money, they require expertise that ufologists don't have. Now, I don't think that ufology has been a fusile enterprise by any stretch. I think that ufologists have really done a very good job of documenting what this phenomenon is like, what its contours are, how it works. And I think that, that uh, when science finally does take up this question, it can go back to the best literature by ufologists and learn things about it, learn what they need to know. But ultimately, the resolution of the arguably ETH part of the UFO question is for scientists to determine. Because we lay ufologists working on our spare time with no money aren't going to be able to do
0: it. Working your spare time, Jerry, you've produced an amazing work in the UFO Encyclopedia. And you know, and I'll say this: uh, I was so taken with it that I decided to utilize my online resources. And after borrowing Volume Number Two from my local library, I, I went and I found. It's used, so I'm sorry you're not going to make money on the royalties for it. But I did find that's okay. <laughs> I did find a used set of the two-volume uh, edition. Yeah, that's and the second
3: a- edition you're talking about,
0: exactly. And and I bought it because I think that you know uh, this is uh, besides Richard Dolan's work. You you have created here what is clearly to me, and I think to anybody who takes the time to read it and to look through it. This is the definitive work on this topic. And for that, you you have certainly my everlasting respect. I really appreciate what you've done. Thank you.
3: Well, thank you. That's very flattering. I hope I deserve it. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, I think you, you're being far too modest. Uh, this is an amazing work. For anybody really interested in understanding this phenomenon to the extent that it can be understood, go to your public library and check this out. You will be stunned by what you find. Thank is you, it actually still available, Jerry?
3: It may still be in print. You could check on you know, Amazon or one
0: of those. It, it is still in print. It is still in print, yes. Okay.
3: Yeah. yeah. It, it, the second edition, which is the definitive edition, is the one that came out in 1998. And I think that is, yeah, okay, you say it's still
2: in print. Yes, it is. You better call your publisher about those checks they owe you. <laughs> We've learned, well, David and I have written books, and we learn that you have to do that every time. So no, day the,
3: the, no the, the, this book was written on contract, and I was paid everything up front, so I don't make any money on individual sales anymore in this particular deal. No, I was well oh, compensated oh. up front, so I have no complaints.
2: Oh, well, okay. Thank you. Thank you for writing it. Thank you for taking time and effort, Jerry. What's the difference, yeah, by the much. way, between the second and first edition, assuming one's looking for a used copy?
3: The first one was in three volumes. The second edition is really much better. It is the definitive edition. And when people say they have the first edition, I kind of cringe because I can see it's short <laughs> comics. I've been able to figure out how to the I got to the second edition. And there's a lot of stuff in the second edition that's not in the
2: as you'd expect, yeah. Does that give you an incentive to say, you know what, maybe I should do a third edition and get another volume in there? Because things have happened since if then. If someone
3: waived a lot of money under my nose, yes. Short of that, no. I can't tell you how burned out I was by the time I did it. So I spent most of a decade working on that project. Mm. And it took me several years before I could even start thinking about UFOs again. And I got back into it only because I began to develop my notion of experience anomalies and anomalous events, and I found a new way to look at things. And that brought me back. But just being immersed in those materials full-time for years on end is really, really does a job on you, finally. You think, you know, I have to find a normal life now.
2: <laughs> well, you have told us one of the more interesting stories about research, that we have certainly encountered in our studies. I think you've been one of our best guests, if not the best guests on the show. And we're very pleased over the fact that you were able to get back into it and spend a couple of hours with us. And I always say this, if we have a special session that we enjoy, don't be a stranger. We'll stay in touch with you, see what you're doing about your publications, but maybe sometime in the future, you'll come back again.
4: Okay,
3: sounds good. Thank, yes, thank you, you for having
2: me. Our pleasure, sir. Thank you. Don't...
0: The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedny
2: is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.